My mic works better if I turn it on. We've got this morning um, at 9 o'clock, they're going to be having an outdoor Bible class for our elementary school kids. And so for those that are here that are wanting to do that, which might just be mine, you can go ahead and go now or go later. It, that'll be fine. And there's not nearly as much activity in the auditorium as there used to be. And will be again. Will be again. Boy, Dennis, I was listening to that lesson. The problem with having I mean, the sermon's so close to your thoughts as I get up here, and I just want to talk about what you've talked about. Cause I'm, so um, looking at that happens in Luke 5, and then again a story almost identical to it in John 21, where the resurrected Jesus appears to almost the same group, a slightly different group of fishermen. And from a distance, and, and after the resurrection, he is the same and yet somehow more difficult to recognize to several of them. And he says to them, hey, why don't you guys throw your nets on the other side? And Peter thinks, this sounds familiar. And suddenly there's 153 large fish in these nets, and they're pulling them up. Uh, but there's a difference in the John 21 passage. Uh, one is that Peter immediately says, I know who can do this. And he jumps in the water to go see his Messiah. And the other is that the nets don't start breaking in John 21. And, and you kind of think, why is it that in, in the previous story, the nets are barely able to hold on, but with 153 large fish in these nets, they kind of just bring them to shore, and then it's there. Jesus wanted to have breakfast with them, so it was important that the nets hold. Um, and it's kind of this subtle little nuance that John includes that is, is I just really enjoy um, that that's there, and, and echoes of the power of Jesus resonate throughout the Gospels. You know, last week we talked about the criminal on the cross, and we talked about the incredible faith that he demonstrated uh, at the foot of the cross uh, in the midst of a really, really, really bad day. Not many of us have had bad days that, co that compare to the day he was having there on his own cross next to Jesus. Uh, I feel very comfortable saying that. It was a horrifically bad day for that man, but he also had the awareness to know that he was there because he deserved to be there. He had committed crimes that merited his punishment. And yet in the midst of this really bad day, the criminal on the cross asked Jesus for a place in Jesus's kingdom. And last week we talked about how much faith it takes to essentially stand in front of an executioner, a firing squad, and to look at the guy standing in front of the firing squad with you and say, hey, maybe later, do you think you could give me a job? It's nearly foolish. It's beyond that. And anyone that's in that moment would go, this is absurd, except that's the faith that the criminal on the cross comes to in that moment. That why all of those who had traveled with Jesus come to this moment and begin losing their faith, this man comes to this moment and begins finding his. And it is nearly irrational how much faith he has that Jesus is the king and that the kingdom is death-proof and imminent. What faith. What faith. And it gives us an incredible example in tough times, in tough years, to see this kind of faith. It's a faith that is rooted in, in focusing on the eternal nature of the kingdom of God instead of the circumstantial nature of the temporary struggles we go through. I didn't realize this when I started it last week, uh, but as I got a lot of, of really good feedback throughout the week, 
uh, on a sermon. It kind of developed into, at some point last night, a three-week kind of series that I wanted to flesh out, talking about what does it mean to have tough faith during tough times. So we're going to be looking at this for a couple of weeks um, last week, uh, some of you know this and some of you may not, but as, as we finished this early service, Jerry Robertson started having a heart attack on his way out of the building. Um, and, and as he was having that heart attack, uh, he and Charlene decided he would go straight to the hospital. They rushed him in. Uh, he had immediate emergency surgery, uh, and they were able to get the blockage removed and get his heart functioning well. Um, and, and I was talking to Charlene later that night, and she goes, yeah, he was back in his room by lunch, and we were sitting there talking about the criminal on the cross. And I thought, man, that's a good sermon. <laughs> I talked to him last night, and he said, uh, hey, you really ought to think about improving your sermons if you're going to start giving your members heart attacks every week. <laughs> uh, okay, there's some perspective. Um, Saw Isaac Miles kind of chatting uh, with people on Facebook about it and, and was really encouraged by those different things. And so I want to, uh, to begin looking into tough faith for tough times. This week we're going to talk about how to pray and how to worship, how to, how to give glory to God in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of bad days and weeks and seasons, and even in the midst of bad years. How do you do that? How do we go to God and honestly pray to Him when things stink? How do you do that? Uh, next week, we're going to look at it when it feels like you're in a place that you don't even belong, like you're living in a foreign land. Uh, and to some extent, I think that that's one of the best ways to think about the world that we're living in today. It feels foreign to us in many ways. Uh, how do you live as people of faith in a foreign land? Uh, but today we're going to talk about how to pray. And as I've kind of leaned into this idea and this topic a little bit this week. I started kind of doing a mid-year audit. We're a little over halfway through 2020. Can you believe it? Oh, Arlette, hasn't it been great? Okay, yeah. 2020. Uh, show of hands, how many of you are having the 2020 that you expected? Anyone? Yeah, for those of you that are listening to this recording later, let the record show zero hands were raised. Um, none of us are having the year that we expected. None of us are, you think back to, you know, maybe in January you kind of thought, what are my New Year's resolutions? Boy, what a year. You had no idea what was coming. Uh, and show of hands, how many of you are having a better 2020 than you expected when you looked forward into this year? Uh, let the record reflect. Zero hands. Uh, it's not the year we thought we were going to be having. Uh, and yet, as I thought about this, my initial kind of premise as I started kind of thinking about this week's topic was this is one of the worst years ever. And then I actually started looking back on the years of my life, and I thought, well, I mean, it's not the worst, actually. Because fifth grade was tough. Fifth grade was a tough year. Um, for, for little reasons and big reasons, there were some, some little reasons, like in fifth grade, I was one of the only kids that didn't know it was cool to untuck your shirt. I didn't know that. I figured that out in sixth grade. That was a big week for me. Uh, fifth grade, I didn't know that. I, I lost the spelling bee at my school. Uh, my siblings started teasing me a lot because I had my first crush, and she'd call me on the phone, and they just teased me endlessly about that. Uh, but in big ways, too. Fifth grade was the year in my life of the Oklahoma City bombing. 
I remember looking out the, the window of my classroom after hearing what sounded like thunder on a cloudless day and seeing a cloud that I didn't understand yet. But that was a bad year. It was a bad year. I remember ninth grade. Uh, ninth grade is my freshman year of Mustang High School. And, and back then, they still let seniors haze freshmen. And so you'd get a little bit of hazing. There was a little bit of that going on, especially in sports. Uh, that was scary. It ended up nothing really happened that was as bad as the fear of what might happen at school or in the locker room. Uh, but freshman year, you're not quite sure about what's going on. Uh, in my uh, freshman anatomy class, uh, we dissected a cat in class. Um, which I was pretty uncomfortable with. And, and then the cat was pregnant, and that was really disturbing. Um, so, ugh, you know, freshman year. Um, but that year was also the year that, in a big way, the world changed. Uh, for me, ninth grade was when there was a shooting at Columbine High School. And it ushered in what has become decades uh, now of, of school violence and of children not being able to feel safe in their classrooms. Uh, that year, ninth grade, uh, we had bomb threats at my school. That was not part of my reality before that year. The world became a scarier and less safe place. My senior year in high school, uh, that September, uh, was when the events of 9-11 and all that transpired in the weeks and months after that took place. Uh, in my life, it was a good year, but in our world, that was a difficult and heavy, heavy time. It was a bad year. In my personal life, apart from national events, uh, my freshman year at college is when my mom passed away. In my sophomore year, my dad passed away. Uh, I loved college, but those were tough events in difficult years. And so when I reflect on 2020, it's not been a great year, but it hasn't been my worst year. And I think for most of us in the room, we can reflect on our lives and, and think of years that were tougher and harder than the one that we're living through right now. And yet this one has a little bit of a different feel because we are all simultaneously going through this, but in a way that it's difficult to know what supporting each other looks like. When, when there's a, a violent attack on our community or our country, we, we all instinctively know to come together and work as one towards what's next, and we immediately begin having hope for a better future. This year feels like we all collectively entered a quicksand marathon, and we're just all stuck, and we're not sure where the exit is, and it's, it's frustrating. And, and it's hard to have hope that tomorrow's going to be better than today, and in fact, I... If, you had to, if I had to put $100 on it, I'd guess this year has a little bit of getting worse before things start to get better. That's where my money is. I hope not. I pray that God intervenes and that this world starts to shift to look more and more like the perfect creation. He, he put Adam and Eve in and Eden and that Jesus will restore eventually. And I have full faith and confidence in that, but I don't know if this year is going to look better than last month. I don't know. So how do we deal with years like this. And the reality is that for some of the families at Northwest, this is one of their top three worst years in their lives. We've lost loved ones this year. Uh, we didn't at Northwest want to be doing funerals for Bill Day Sr. and for Joyce Smith. We didn't want to do that this year or any year. But that's what we've Done. We've had members like Marcellus battling with cancer, Joanne with all the bypasses. James, this last week, broke his leg and can't put weight on it for 10 
weeks. And if you know James, he likes to be active. This is not going to be a good year for, for James. Uh, Wade Miller's going in this week to get, to get a biopsy. And we, you know, be praying for Wade this week because this is a bad week for Wade. He's really struggling with the fear of what this might reveal. And so, so we're praying for him and we're coming alongside him in, in this difficult season. And we have members that have lost jobs and that are having financial problems. We have members that are having legal problems. We have members who are isolated at home or that are stranded in nursing homes. This is a a really bad year for many of the members in our family. It's definitely not the year that we planned for. And for those that are having their worst year, we come alongside you in prayer every day. It's not a fun time. This year has largely Stunk. Can, I, I think you can say this year stinks. Can you say that in a microphone at a church? I hope so. Uh, it's not been a fun year. It's not been, uh, if this was uh, on ESPN, this would be in the ESPN not top 10 years of my life. And I think that would be true for most of you. You know, in Israel and Judah had a bad year. Uh, they had a bad year. Their year was probably worse than we're having right now in 587 B.C., Uh, I don't think any of us remember that far back, but the scripture certainly does. In 587 B.C., Babylon shows up and destroys Jerusalem, lays siege to the city, destroys the walls, tears down the temple. And, And in the Babylonian way, one of the things they did to keep rebellions from happening is they found that people were often willing to battle for their homeland, but if you uprooted them and went and planted them in someone else's homeland, that it would often diminish their willingness to stand up and fight for this neighborhood that's not theirs. And in fact, it would often crush much of their identity, their religious enthusiasm, their sense of patriotism, that they would become so disoriented that they would become more Babylonian and less like themselves and their own people from their own heritage. And so as Babylon takes these captives from Judah and Jerusalem and begins marching them towards where they're going to live next, where they're going to live in Babylon, They often chose the wealthiest and the healthiest, uh, the ones who had the most money and influence and power. And they would take these people and they would move them somewhere else. So now the people that were left had no leaders and the leaders would have less uh, vigor about them in their life and less uh, all the things that you don't want a people that you're trying to subject to have. They began a forced exile of these people. Biblically, it's what we know as the Babylonian exile, and we talk about it a lot of times as a time when the people had to just go somewhere else and they couldn't go home, and and that fails to really capture the problems that this caused for Israel. It's not just that they had to go live somewhere else. Lots of, we live in a world today where lots of people relocate for a season of their lives, and they live overseas for a time, and maybe they want to come home, and we think, well, that's unfortunate. You have to live in another place. This is way worse than that for Israel. It forces them to have to answer all kinds of questions about their God and their people and their faith. They have to ask questions because they... A lot of times today, if if one country loses a war with another country, you would ask, why did we lose that war? And you would generally say, well, their general was better than our general, or their air force was better than our army. That's why we lost this war. It's the events of this or that battle that resulted in a loss taking place. 
But if you go into the world of, of antiquity and the world of the Bible, and you can see this if you've ever read Homer's uh, Iliad or the Odyssey, these ancient Greek books that help you capture the idea, the battles were won and lost based on whose gods were happy with them, whose gods were mad at their people, and then whose gods were tougher than the other people's gods. And so if you lose a battle, you don't go reevaluate your military strategy, you go and reevaluate your faith. We don't think of it that way. Israel did. And so when you have Babylon come in and destroy your walls, destroy God's house, and then all of a sudden ship out his people, you don't have to ask, man, politically, militarily, what's going on here? You have to ask theologically, where is God right now? What just happened? Are Babylon's gods bigger, badder, stronger than Yahweh? Are Babylon's gods more powerful than the God who promised to protect us? Or is God just not faithful? God said he would be our God and we would be his people. But here Babylon shows up and we put our faith and confidence in the God who we, who we expect to protect our walls, our people, and his house. And it all just got ransacked. Did God just take the week off? Is God no longer going to be faithful to us? And some people stand up. The prophets over and over again say, God shows up. God is faithful. You quit being faithful. You broke the agreement. You're the ones who sinned. You're the ones who went off and worshiped idols. You're the ones who said, we don't want this God anymore. So when Babylon showed up, God said, that's what you want. Good luck. See how you can do without me the prophets said. If God's house is destroyed and we are forced to leave the place God dwells, Israel had to ask, maybe if we go to Babylon, we should start worshiping Babylonian gods. After all, they appear to be stronger and we're going into their home turf. And there was a little bit of a belief in antiquity that the gods were local. So if you're in Egypt, uh, you can't call long distance to your gods back home. You got to worship the Egyptian gods. If you're in Babylon, you can't go all the way to temple to worship, so you might as well find the closest temple and worship whoever statue's set up there. The prophets over and over again have to say, do not conform to the gods of the people who live around you. Your God goes with you wherever you go. You can't get far enough from this God, Yahweh. They keep asking in all these different ways, why are we suffering so much if God's in charge and he's our God? This doesn't seem like it's the way things should be happening. And so in the midst of this, the heat of the moment, Israel is being forced out of Jerusalem. And, and when I say Israel, really talking about Judah coming out of Jerusalem, a lot of the northern tribes of Israel are already scattered uh, and destroyed by the Assyrian armies some years before. But here we have Psalm 137, a psalm that is written in the moment that they are in their forced march out of their homes and into Babylon. And here's the song that they sang in the prayer that they prayed. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there, our captors asked for us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. 
they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? But if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. About 40% of the Psalms are angry, are filled with grief and loss. They're called laments the lament psalms, they're filled with the pain of the moment that the psalmist is living in. And this is one of the most wrenching of them all. And you see that if you go through the rest of the psalm, and we won't because it kind of gets into just kind of the geopolitics of the time where they talk about what the Edomites did and the Babylonians did, and it ends with them saying, God, may you dash the babies of Babylon against the rocks. That's how hurt they are, that that becomes part of a prayer they pray. And it doesn't mean that God looked at them and went, this is your finest hour, Jerusalem. I'm so proud you feel that way about your enemy's babies. That's not what's going on. But what is real and raw is that God wants his people to pray honest prayers in the good times with thanksgiving and in the bad times with lament. And so it's okay for us to cry out to God and say, God, we don't like this year. God, I'm not... I'm not thankful for the years where I lost my parents before I wanted to. I can look back now and say I'm thankful for how you redeemed those griefs and losses in my life and have done great things in me and through me as a result of that, but I'm not grateful for how that felt and the loss that that my family experienced. God, I'm not grateful for this year. I trust that God can redeem it and use it for his good, but I'm not having a great time in the process. And God's big enough to handle those complaints. And so here we are in the middle of of 2020, and, and this year we have sat and we've wept and we've whined and we've moped and we've grumbled and complained and we've grieved. And and really I think grief is a good word to talk about it. Because the reality is that many of us have lost things we really cherish this year. We've lost the energy and the spirit that comes from being in this room giving full voice to our praise. It's uncomfortable every week coming together in this room and and we start singing and it feels like if you've ever accidentally tried driving with the emergency brake on and you just, it's a, you kind of go, oh man, the whole car's about to come apart. Coming together and wanting so bad to sing, it is well, and hit that crescendo with the body of believers in a full room with children crying, but you don't even hear them because we're in one voice. We grieve that we're not doing that every Sunday. We grieve that we had plans and ideas and adventures that our families were going to go on that have, have just gone by the wayside or been postponed to next year. 
We had goals and ambitions for, for ministries and for jobs and careers and for the, the places where we work that all of a sudden are about just maintaining and surviving the year, not about thriving and growing into tomorrow. We grieve that, that children have lost the experiences of, uh, of sports and activities and school and, and graduations have been not what we planned and we grieve those losses. And it's not to say that we grieve them like someone grieves the loss of a loved one, but you can grieve the loss of dreams and plans and futures in a world that you expected when the world falls short. And that's where we're living in 2020. And it's uncomfortable. And we struggle to think that the rest of the year is going to get much better. It could get worse. So Judah sits by the rivers of Babylon with their harps hung in the tree. So how do we sing the songs of God in a foreign land? This week as you're walking around, you're going to feel at times like you're in a foreign land. This isn't the place I thought I was going to be living in this year. Things have changed. And it's not better than I wanted. How do we worship God in a foreign land? And then there's this statement of incredible faith-filled resilience. But God, if I ever forget Zion, Jerusalem, you, where you dwell, where your house is. And when, uh, when, when the Israel says Jerusalem, what they mean is like us saying, God, if we forget church, let us never be able to worship or praise again. And when we say church, what we mean is, God, if we forget you and your people and your promises, then may our tongues go still and silent forever. And when they say, my, may my hand lose its skill and my tongue cleave to the, ring, the roof of my mouth, what they're saying is, God, if we forget to praise you and not anybody else, then let us never be able to worship anything or anybody. May we stay committed to you wherever this world takes us. How can we sing in a foreign land when we have so many reasons to grieve and lose hope? The first thing, we need the faith of the criminal on the cross who has the ability, incredible ability, when everyone around him is losing the faith that they have established because Jesus is on the cross, he sees Jesus on the cross and is gaining faith. We need a faith that is attached to the eternal nature of the kingdom of God and not the temporary nature of our difficult circumstances. And we need the faithful, honest resilience of the Psalms. The lament Psalms that lay the truth of their suffering at God's feet, but they have hope for the future because of their memory of the past. Because of their memory of the past, we find confidence in the present and hope for the future. But our memory of the past needs to be wrapped in thanksgiving for all the bad years God's gotten us through before. Psalm 13 has been a song, and when I listed my bad years, my worst year in my memory was my sophomore year in college where, when my dad passed away. And things in my head and in my heart broke in a lot of ways that year. It was hard to find good footing. Uh, it felt that year like I was standing in quicksand. I didn't know what the future looked like as far as one day in advance in those moments. And I didn't know how to pray. And Psalm 13 became the prayer 
that gave me a voice on those days when I didn't know what words to pray. And it's remained so important to me in the years since then. And many of you have heard me teach and talk about this before, but it's not the first time you pray this prayer that it gives you the vocabulary and the beliefs that you need. You've got to let this prayer wash over you. And if you hear it on a good day, it doesn't make sense. And if you hear it on a bad day, it's the only true thing you'll hear all day. Psalm 13 plainly says, How long, Lord, will you forget me? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I've overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. There's two more verses. But if you skip right to them, you miss the suffering of bad years. Because the reality of living through the Psalms is that you get stuck in the badness for a while. You get stuck in the grief for more than it takes to go from verse 4 to verse 5. And so there's a pause that exists here on the page that's beyond the paragraph break. Look on me and give answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Oh, things aren't good today. They're not what we hoped for. But we can still praise God. We can pull the harps off the poplars and give our tongue and our voice the ability to praise God because he got us through worse years than this. And if this is your worst year, and you're saying, he hasn't gotten me through my worst year yet, but I still hope and pray that he does, then what I need you to know is that for the rest of us in the community, in your family of believers, we testify together. And, And let me ask you this. We'll do a show of hands again. How many of you have had a worst year than this that God's gotten you through? For those listening online, let the record show that the hands of the all who are here were raised. God gets us through the tough years. And when we remember those years with gratitude and praise and thanksgiving, it gives us confidence that God's going to get us through the present, and it gives us hope for the future in spite of how the future looks today. That's the power of lament. They are powerful, raw, painful, but ultimately faith-filled prayers and songs How do we have faith on bad days? We need the ability of the criminal on the cross to focus on the eternal nature of the kingdom of God and not the temporary circumstances of this moment. But how do we sing and pray in tough days and in difficult times? We do it honestly, but we do so with gratitude and confidence that God got us through the past stuff. He'll get us through the present stuff and the future will always belong to God. And it will always be good for his people. 
got us through before. He'll get us through again. If we ever forget our God and his past deliverances, then may our tongues stick to the roofs of our mouths. But so long as we remember his faithfulness, we'll always have a reason to sing. In a moment, we're going to join together in worship. Worship in our hearts. We're going to remember what we wish this year would be, what we hope for the future to be, and we do all of that with confidence in the God that gets us through it. If you have any need this morning, please come forward, or if you need to during the week, share it with a shepherd or one of our ministers as we stand and worship together.